Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko, and Figile Lingwati. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Rwandan President Paul Kagame slams Western countries over genocide. Food insecurity doubles in the Central African Republic. And South African athlete Oscar Pistorius testifies at his murder trial. In economics, experts say a healthy Nigerian economy could be beneficial for South Africa. And in sports news, South African Aquatic Championships get underway. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The crisis in the strife-torn Central African Republic has left 1.6 million people, a third of the population in need of food. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization and the World Food Program says the widespread conflict has caused the destruction of livelihoods, loss of food and cash crops, livestock and crucial productive assets across the country. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has warned that ethno-religious cleansing was being conducted in the country. Ban has urged the international community to provide the extra funds and troops needed for a UN force sufficient to stem the chaos that broke out after a March 2013 coup by mainly Muslim Seleka rebels. Guinea's health ministry says the death toll from the Ebola virus epidemic in the country's southern forests and the capital, Conakry, has risen to 95. Doctors Without Borders warns the outbreak in the West African nation is unprecedented because the spread of the disease c- across the country makes it very difficult to control. In Liberia, which borders Guinea, the virus has also killed several people. There is currently no known cure for Ebola, which symptoms are diarrhea, vomiting and bleeding. The United Nations has condemned the killing of two of its workers in Somalia. According to reports, the two consultants working for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime were shot inside Galkeo Airport in Puntland after they got off a plane. The two experts, nationals of the United Kingdom and France, were based in Kenya and visited Somalia regularly. Daniel Dickinson reports. The special representative of the Secretary-General for Somalia, Nicholas Kay, said there could be no justification for what he called a callous attack. The executive director of UNODC, Yuri Fedotov, described the attack as cruel and senseless. Both UN officials called on the Somali authorities to ensure that the killers are brought to justice. The High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, is today likely to hear Paralympian Oscar Pistorius' version of what happened on the morning of Valentine's Day last year when he shot and killed his girlfriend, Riva Stienkamp. Pistorius said he mistook her for an intruder. Yesterday, Pistorius began his testimony with an emotional apology to Stienkamp's family and friends. He also told the court that he's been on a cocktail of antidepressants and sleeping tablets since the incident. 
And finally, various media organizations have arrived at Cape Town International Airport in South Africa's Western Cape Province, where British murder accused Shreen Dewan is expected to touch down later this morning. Dewan will then appear in the Western Cape High Court in connection with the death of his wife Annie in November 2010. He's expected to be charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and defeating the ends of justice. It's unclear whether Dewan will apply for bail. He will be taken for assessments at a secure medical facility. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and It's 8.04 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today is Tuesday, the 8th of April, the 98th day of 2004, and there are exactly 267 days left in the year. Our top story, Rwanda held the 20th genocide anniversary on Monday in remembrance of the millions of lives lost in 1994. Rwanda's President Paul Kagame has criticized revisionists of the Rwandan genocide, saying the truth about who was responsible for the genocide must be told. The commemoration ceremony at the National Stadium was attended by UN Secretary General Bangi Moon and other world leaders. From Kigali, Silvanas Karamera reports. 20 years ago, Thousands of Tutsi civilians fled to Kigali Amahoro National Stadium where they hoped to be safe from the Hutu interim militia targeting them at the time. On Monday, the same stadium was packed to the capacity. The VIP stand was equally filled with continental and international leaders who had come to join Rwandans to mark 20 years since the genocide against the Tutsi that claimed one million lives in just 100 days in 1994. Rwanda's president, Paul Hagame's commemoration message, lashed out at the international community for refusing to take responsibility for the genocide in Rwanda and instead wanting to conceal their role, adding that 20 years later, still turn victims into accused. The passage of time should not obscure the facts, lessen the responsibility, or turn victims into villains. cannot be bribed or forced into changing their history and no country is powerful enough even when they think they are to change the facts. The United Nations Secretary General Bani Ki-moon, although admitting that the shame of the inaction of the UN in 1994 in Rwanda still hangs on the international body, stressed that different parts of the world are still grappling with the unrest, a move which compared him to taking these actions. I have sent my own signal to UN representatives around the world. My message to them is simply this. When you see people at risk of atrocity crimes, do not wait for instructions from afar, even if it may offend and act. Our first duty must always be to to protect people, to protect human beings in need and distress. 
Amidi a darker mood and an occasional cry from the crowd that tore through stadium, UN Museveni, the president of Uganda, with a seemingly furious tone, had a stern warning for anyone backing genocide forces against Rwanda. I would like to warn those who hobnob with the genocidians to know that they will have to contend with the patriotic forces that defeated the traitors with their with the, the external backers when they were still much weaker. We are now much stronger in every sense of the word. We are much stronger politically, militarily, socially, and even economically. The people of Rwanda should know that they can always count on the people of Uganda. Monday marked the commencement of National Morning Week that ran until the 13th of April. Activities to mark the 20th anniversary of genocide were proceeded by the laying of wreaths at the Ghana Genocide Memorial Center where over 250,000 victims of the genocide are buried. President Burkagame Frank the Bayou and Secretary General Bani Kimon also light the national frame of remembrance which will burn for 100 days symbolizing the duration of the mass atrocities 20 years ago. Silvanus Kalimera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. The Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations says a lack of trust and confidence continues to prevent collective action on disarmament globally. Jan Eliasson was addressing the opening session of the UN's Disarmament Commission, a body made up of member states of the General Assembly that considers questions which includes nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation and the regulation of conventional weapons. He expressed shock at the global spend on arms in the face of difficulties in achieving the Millennium Development Goals. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Military spending reached almost $1.6 trillion last year and is expected to rise in 2014, with the United States making up over 40% of the total. We are frustrated and disappointed. Deputy Secretary General Jan Eliasson speaking at the opening session. We are justifiably shocked when we note and learn that global military spending in just one day, in just one day, is almost double the regular annual budget of the United Nations. And we are frustrated and disappointed when we face difficulties achieving the Millennium Development Goals, so important for millions and millions of people around the world, because of lack of resources. As we all should realize, the world is overarmed and peace is underfunded. Decisions taken by the Disarmament Commission must be endorsed by the General Assembly, but the deliberative body has been unable to agree on a substantial outcome for more than a decade, calling into question its very role in shaping the course of global disarmament. The UN's number two called for diplomatic bridge builders to carry the day. The skills most needed today are present in this room by you. They are the skills of diplomacy, guided by the pursuit of common ground and by a shared recognition that cooperation is more advantageous than polarization or confrontation. It's a win-win proposition. He also criticized the lack of transparency in the armaments trade that often fuel conflicts around the world, quoting from the resolution that established the commission in 1952. I quote, we still remain moved by anxiety at the general lack of confidence plaguing the world and leading to the burden of increasing armaments and the fear of war." End of quote. These words were not formulated today, 
or even recently. They were formulated 62 years ago. They are parts of the first sentence of Resolution 502, which established the original commission in 1952. So the agenda partly remains the same. The commission meets until April 25th and is expected to partly focus discussion on agreement around a fissile material cut-off treaty that would strengthen nuclear non-proliferation norms by banning the production of highly enriched uranium and plutonium for nuclear weapons. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. The number of people in the Central African Republic who are not getting enough food has doubled over the past year to 1.6 million. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, and the World Food Program, WFP, said in a joint report that food insecurity has worsened due to the widespread conflict that has affected the country since December 2012. The conflict has caused the destruction of livelihoods across the country as a result of the loss of food and cash crop, livestock and crucial productive assets. FAO Radio Sandra Ferrari asked Dominique Bujon, the director of FAO's Emergency and Rehabilitation Division, about the report. Basically, the mission looked at both the commercial supplies of food on the one hand and on the other hand, at the purchasing power of people, which has, as you can imagine, been severely affected by the crisis situation. The report also looked at mitigation measures that should be put in place by the international community. And the report finds that the current conflict is having devastating impact on the country economic situation, with the agriculture sector very badly hit. But I would say that behind these economic numbers, uh, there is a lot of suffering for people. And we estimated that the conflict had a devastating impact on the livelihood of about 1.6 million people who are currently food insecure. Also, I think it's important to note that due to the poor harvest in 2013, we now have a situation where we have an anticipated lean season. The first thing we need to do, of course, is to find ways to bring peace to the country. But then, from the FAO side, we are really keen to assist people returning to their field and resume their productive activities. And based on what you saw during your last mission to the country, how would you describe the situation on the ground? I was in the country relatively recently and we had the opportunity to travel outside of Bangui, going to uh, Bosangoa and then traveling in rural areas around Bosangoa. And what we found is devastation. We found villages burned, fields burned and people having to flee their villages. We saw many empty villages with people having sought refuge either in uh, IDP camps or in makeshift camps in the bush. I mean, these people, of course, have lost all their assets, either in terms of livestock, for example, but also in terms of agricultural assets and were, for the vast majority of them, not able to crop their land in 2013. And when they were able to crop their land and were about to harvest something, in most cases, it was looted so that they end up with a very dire food security situation. I think it's important to bear in mind that we have, as I said, 1.6 million people who are in severe food insecurity situation, and therefore all possible actions need to be put in place to assist these people. And how will FAO assist in improving food security in the country? 
Well, FAO, since the beginning of the crisis, has mobilized in the framework of a corporate effort decided by the Director General. We have strengthened our team in the country and reached out to the international community to mobilize resources to provide assistance to about 150,000 households. So far, we have secured funding for about 75,000 households and we are in advanced discussion with donors for an additional assistance to 30,000 households. This is the critical time. The planting season is starting now. We are planning for distribution of rice and maize seeds in the coming weeks together with tools because people have also lost all their tools. This distribution will continue over the coming weeks and months and until June with other type of crops being supported. But of course, our goal in FAO is not only to provide relief, is to help people embark into recovery and then try to move towards resilience. And in that respect, we are especially keen to work on helping to resume the local economy especially working, for example, with women's group. They have not only the capacity to help resume the local economy, but they have also a tremendous potential in bringing dialogue among the communities and therefore contributing to peace building. That was Dominique Bujon, the director of FAO's Emergency and Rehabilitation Division, talking to Sandra Ferrari of FAO Radio. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It will be a difficult day for South African Paralympic athlete Oscar Pistorius in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria when he will tell the world in his own words how he shot and killed his girlfriend Riva Steenkamp. Pistorius will take the witness stand for the second day in a row. He is facing a charge of murder after his... Sh- he shot and killed Steenkamp in the early hours of Valentine's Day last year. During his first day on the stand yesterday, Pastorius broke down several times when his testimony was led about Steenkamp's injuries. Today will most likely also be an emotional roller coaster for him. Lila Machnas reports. Pastorius will have to face his worst nightmare when he tells the court what went through his mind when he shot four shots through his locked toilet cubicle door in the early hours of Valentine's Day last year. Yesterday he gave the world a glimpse into how the events of that evening affected him. I have terrible nightmares about about things that happen at night where I wake up and I smell smell, uh, blood and I wake up to being terrified. If I hear a noise I wake up... uh, just in a, in, a, in a complete state of terror um, to a point that I'd rather not sleep than, um, than fall asleep and, and wake up like that. So for many weeks I, I didn't sleep. Pistorius told the court he is taking antidepressants as well as medicine to help him sleep. He says he thought it was a blessing when he met Riva Steenkamp because her faith was also important for her and he always wanted to have a partner that was a Christian. She was a very strong uh, Christian. She, she um, would pray for me at night. She would pray about everything, pray, pray about my training, pray about uh, all the small things I had in my life. You know, we'd pray before we, we eat. My, 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 God's, my, my God's my God of refuge. So. 
He says since the incident he doesn't want to touch firearms, but because he still feels unsafe, he now has a guard at his front door at night. I'm blessed that my sister stays on the same property as I do, so I can phone her in the middle of the night, which I often do, to come and sit by me. And um, on that particular night, uh, I don't obviously ever want to handle a firearm again or be around a uh, firearm. So I've got a, a security guard that stands outside of my front door at night. But I woke up and I was terrified. and I, um, I for some reason, couldn't calm myself down. So uh, I, I climbed into the cupboard and I phoned my sister to come and sit by me for a while, which she did. Pistorius's advocate, Barry Roo, asked if the court could adjourn early as Pistorius was exhausted. I think I'm tired. I'm just very tired at the moment. So. Did you sleep last night? No, sir. I'm just, uh, I'm just tired. I think it's just a very... It's a lot of things obviously going through my mind and the weight of this is, is extremely overbearing. Before Pistorius started with his testimony in chief, he apologised to Steenkamp's family and friends. I'd like to apologise and say that there's not a moment and there hasn't been a moment since this tragedy happened that I haven't thought about you know, your family. I wake up every morning and you're the first people I think of, the first people I pray for. I can't imagine the pain and the sorrow and the emptiness that I've caused you and your family. I was simply trying to protect Riva. I can promise that when she went to bed that night, she felt loved. Steenkamp's mother, June, looked straight at Pistorius while he was sobbing his apology in the silent courtroom. Her advocate, Dupe de Brain, says the Steenkamps have gone on record earlier saying they don't hate Pistorius, they just want to know what happened. Pistorius elaborated extensively about his athletic career, the number of times his family and friends were victims of crimes, how his mother and father's homes were burgled when he was a child, how he was aware of the crime in the estate he lived in, and how he was followed a few times by unknown people. Root told the court they will call between 14 and 16 witnesses and will focus on evidence relevant to the toilet door, how far sound carries, the markings on the prosthetics, light and visibility, as well as Pistorius's feelings of vulnerability. The trial continues today. Lila Magnus, North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria. Our question of the day to you is, what did you make of Oscar's first day on the stand? Send us your views, your opinions on email at info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa One. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A 13-year defamation case against a prominent media personality in Botswana and former regional director of the Media Institute of Southern Africa, Metaitsile Libile, has been dismissed by the High Court of Botswana. Libile has been fighting a legal battle since 2002 after an article 
article was published by The Voice newspaper in July 2001. The article referred to perceived nepotism, favoritism and tribalism amongst the judiciary. The published article referred to a draft paper written by Li Bile in 2000, which was leaked to the newspaper, who, according to Li Bile, published the paper without his consent. The trial concluded in February 2013, but Li Bile had to wait another 12 months before the judge delivered a verdict. Justice Singh Walia, who presided over the case in the High Court, dismissed the case with costs. In his judgment, he stated that the plaintiff could not prove that Lee Bile published the paper. To talk more about this, we're now joined on the line by Misa's media law policy and advocacy officer, Jessica Duffy in Windhoek. Good morning, Jessica, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, Jessica, what do you make of this judgment by the High Court of Botswana, and why did it take so long? First of all, obviously, we welcome the decision. We feel that it's the right decision, and we see that as a victory for freedom of expression in Botswana. Obviously, we are very disappointed that the charges were brought against Lapili in the first place and that they took so long to resolve. And I think that highlights a lot of the problems in the Botswana justice system in terms of how they deal with civil defamation there. Now, Jessica, what was the stake had the judgment gone against uh, Mr. Lapili? Uh, my understanding is that he would be facing charges in roughly the amount of over a hundred thousand U.S. dollars, in addition to the costs that he's had to pay himself to defend himself over the last thirteen years. And how did he react to the verdict? How did both parties react to the verdict? Uh, I can only tell you about Lapili's reaction. I can tell you that he was completely elated and relieved. He felt that this was something that should never have happened. He didn't circulate the draft paper himself. He felt like it was published without his consent, and so he feels completely validated that the judge agreed with him and filed in his favour. Now, in terms of the judgment, are there any indications of uh, appealing the judgment? Uh, Not that I'm aware of. All right. Now, Misa has raised concerns about the excessive amount of damages sought and awarded in such cases. Can you tell us more about this? Definitely. Basically, we believe that excessive damages awarded in cases of civil defamation are in addition, as we've already mentioned, to the high legal costs required to defend people against such charges have a chilling effect on freedom of expression. Long-running and expensive cases such as Lupili's can financially ruin publications and force them to close down, even if they're ultimately successful in defending themselves. For that reason, we would urge the government of Botswana to initiate a review into both legal costs and damages in such matters. Further... I would also like to see more self-regulation in these matters. That is, we would like to see defamation and other complaints against the media taken to the Botswana Media Council to deal with, as opposed to automatically launching lengthy and potentially extremely costly court proceedings whenever somebody has a grievance against the media. Now, Jessica, before I let you go, how restricted is freedom of thought or speech in Botswana? And now after this uh, uh, verdict and uh, in, in the case of Mr. Lee Bile winning the case, um, will this be set a precedence for other potential cases? We certainly hope so. Um, to be honest, the concern is that uh, while we're relieved that Lapili got off, um, he was a co-defendant in the case uh, with The Voice newspaper who published the article 
their publishers and also the editor of The Voice, and the judge actually filed against them, and so they were found guilty of defamation. And so while it's a victory for Lapilli, it's still a bit of a blow to freedom of expression, and it just shows that the judges there take these matters very seriously and are not afraid to impose costly damage awards in these cases. And that's something that we would definitely like to see changed. Now, in the case of the Voice, uh, Voice uh, newspaper and the, the editor, what is to happen now? Are they going to appeal this judgment or are they going to have to pay this these costs? Um, at this stage, I think there is yet to be a hearing date set to determine damages. And after that, I'm not sure if they will appeal or not. But so far, there's still a hearing to come to determine the amount of damages. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. That was Jessica Duffy and Vin Hook joining us uh, from the Media Law Policy and Advocacy Officer at the Media Institute of Southern Africa, joining us from the line from in Vint Hook, Namibia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.28 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. All eyes will be on murder accused Shrian Dewani who will arrive in South Africa from Britain this morning. He's due to land at Cape Town International Airport and then be whisked off to court for a brief appearance. Dewani allegedly masterminded the murder of his wife Annie while on honeymoon in the mother city in November 2010. He's expected to be charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder and defeating the ends of justice. Berenice Moss reports. Dewani will be accompanied by a doctor, a nurse and members of the South African police on board the flight from the UK. The 33-year-old will be represented by Francois Fancel, SC, and assisted by instructing attorney Taswell Papier. At court, Dewani will be formally charged and processed. Cape Judge President John Klope will preside over the matter in the Western Cape High Court. It's unclear at this stage whether Dewani will apply for bail. NPA spokesperson Tunzi Maga. The issue of the bail application and all other aspects that will be ventilated will be handled by the NPA and will be unpacked by them. But part of our undertaking was that he's good, because of the peculiar medical condition that he has, that of high depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, he will be kept at a medical facility for the duration of his medical examination by psychiatrists in South Africa until a trial court determines whether he's fit or not to stand trial. Dewan's extradition process took more than three years. Three other men are already serving lengthy jail terms for their role in Annie's murder. And his family say they will not attend today's court appearance. Her uncle, Asha Kundocha. The family is relieved that finally this case has taken a huge, huge step forward. Uh, we've decided not to be there because it's just a formal process. But uh, we will be there from day one when the, when the case starts. Kundocha says they are satisfied with how South African authorities are handling the matter. They have done a very good job, the authorities. They are really stood up and fought. But most above all, the support we have had, the enormous support we have had from the South African people in terms of social media, emails, uh, it, was, it has been overwhelming and we, we are so thankful for that. It has really helped us to, to keep our stamina up. 
Dewani's mental state has been central in his fierce battle to avoid extradition. The South African government says he will be kept at a secure medical facility, but details will have to be endorsed by the court. I'm Berenice Moss in Cape Town. And that report by Bernice Moss from Cape Town. And Musa up next with the headlines. In the headlines, the ongoing conflict in the Central African Republic creates food insecurity for 1.6 million people. Guinea's health ministry says the death toll from the Ebola virus epidemic in the country's southern forests and the capital, Conakry, has risen to 95. And the Justice and Constitutional Development Department in South Africa has reiterated that murder accused Sri Ndwani's security will not be compromised. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. The new Partnership for Africa's Development, NEPAD, recently launched a capacity-building project that is designed to address the infrastructural deficit that hampers Africa's competitiveness on the world market. PIDA, short for the Program for Infrastructure Development in Africa, will improve the quality of lives of people by improving access to electricity, transport and information and communications technology for the majority of Africa's population. To talk more about this, we're now joined on the line but by Adam Adina, head of NEPAD's infrastructure program. Good morning, Adam, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lou. How are you? Thank you for the invitation. Now, Adam, can you tell us more about PIDA and how this is expected to, to work? Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Lulu. Um, you know, PIDA is... Um, the African Union Program for Infrastructure Development for the next 30 years. And um, it was approved in 2012 by the heads of state. And right now we are in the process of implementing the 51 programs of PIDA. Now, Adama, I need to I need to apologize for getting your name incorrectly. It is okay. Adama. Um, now, PIDA has been lauded as a quantum leap in Africa's growth. Why is the, this the case? Well, as you may know that um, today, uh, when we talk about regional integration as a goal, we need to know the drivers that would lead us to that um, goal. And basically, looking at the whole scheme of things, PIDA will be the way to go forward because we are looking at how do we build our regional infrastructure networks, whether it's in transport, whether it's in energy and, 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 and ICT. So obviously, looking at what we want to do by the year 2020, when we a step to be I mean, a global African uh, regional integrate, integrated market, we are looking at those priority action plan projects that can be built within the next 30 years in order for us to achieve that goal of uh, integrated Africa. And now, Adama, tell us, what has the reaction been from African leaders or African governments in terms of uh, PIDA's mandate? Sorry, say it again. I didn't, uh, my line is breaking. All right. What has the reaction been from African governments and its leaders with regards to PIDA's mandate and what is expected of, of PIDA as, as, a, as a development uh, agency? 
Well, first of all, uh, I mean, uh, the African heads of state have proved to be there in, in 2012. Because, I mean, without the political backing and, and, and buying into the program, there would not be any period. And secondly, more implementing the period, I mean, we have to understand that in as much as it is a regional program or initiative, it has to be implemented at national level. Again, you need the 64 countries in Africa to be able to back the initiative. And we all know today that, as you said in your introduction, there is a serious deficit in all areas of our infrastructure, particularly in energy and transport. Mm. So again, we are looking at PIDAT to really bridge the missing links that we experience in these uh, sectors in order for us to be able to trade and also to move uh, between countries and so forth. And what sort of benefits are we going to see coming out of this program? Well, right now what we are looking at, um, if, if you are referring to the capacity building program, yes. what we are trying to do now actually is to um, look at the, the regional economic communities that are going to be the vanguards of this PIDA initiative. We give them the capacity that they require in order for them to be able to prepare the projects. As you may know, I mean, we're talking about 51 programs. Out of that 51 programs, we have about 400 uh, projects that we want to implement in the next eight to ten years. So obviously you need to have the right skill mix and so forth in order for, for the projects to be prepared for to bankability. Without that bankable project, the private sector would not look at it or even the public sector because then again you are trying to see where you can put your, your most scarce resources. So this uh, initiative that we now have in the next week, we are just trying to bring the direct, the, the, the SADEC, was and uh, the Trapatai and so forth to give them the sort of uh, capacity that they need in order to do project preparation. And that's what the African Development Bank, together with NEPAD and the African Union Commission, has been able to do. Now, Adama, you mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, looking at uh, the launching of a capacity project and with uh, capacity obviously comes uh, with uh, skills, as you mentioned just now. Now, in terms of um, the skills, where will you be getting the skills from? Is it Are you going to be looking at uh, people from within the continent or are you going to draw on people who are from the continent and who are outside in global markets, uh, basically working on projects uh, out there in the marketplace? Well, I mean, uh, the skills uh, requirements certainly will be sourced within the, comp- uh, within the continent. I mean, as you may know, Africa is not, I mean, uh, it's not scarce of such types of skills. Mm. The, the issue now is how do we prepare the public sector, meaning the rights and states, in order to manage such uh, projects. But by and large, the skills will be sourced from the private sector, the African private sector, and also from the public sector. It is all about how do we build our skills in order to be able to be good managers to manage these projects. So the source will definitely be within Africa. Adama, thank you so much for joining us. That was Adama Dean, head of the infrastructure program for the new partnership for Africa's development, NEPAD. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.30 now in Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now the World Meteorological Organization has concluded that Cherapunji in India holds the world record for two-day rainfall with 2,493 millimeters recorded on on the 15th and 16th of June in 1995. Dr. Pulak Guhatakuta, head of the hydrology division at the India Meteorology Department, says the monsoon season was responsible for the record. See, Chirapunji is already having that location. It is in northeastern side of India. And that orography is peculiar because in the south it is Bangladesh and plain land. And that just immediately north, that hills here, Silong hills is there. So due to this orography, it is always getting good amount of rainfall. And that it is highest recorded world record regarding one month, two months, three months, even one year. It is world record already it is there. But that 15th June and 16th June, there was heavy rainfall that area due to the presence of monsoon. That Indian monsoon, you know that it is normally it is over Calcutta like, like that. But sometimes it shifted towards little northwards. So that monsoon trap, that is June line of low pressure area, it shifted little northward. And that causes heavy rainfall, extensively heavy rainfall over northeastern India, including that Meghalaya and Cherapunji. Mm-hmm. And that the report also that time during 15-16 actually from 14th already that monsoon was shifted and India Meteorological Department we have given the daily weather forecast also that heavy rainfall chance of occurring heavy rainfall over that area that is Cherapunji, Meghalaya that area. This record doctor is it the first of its kind by Cherapunji in India? Yeah. yeah. Are there any other areas of the globe that has got this record? That earlier record was not in India. The two-day rainfall, it was in Fox Fox. The report, it is the Allah reunion. That is 7 to 9 April 1958, as per WMO record. It was 2, 5, 6, 7 millimeter. But this is more than that. It is basically on 16 June, there was rainfall of 156 centimeter. And previous day, 98 centimeter. So total, it was more than that 2, 4, 6, 7 millimeter. What was the aim and objective of this investigation? It is uh, in which earlier one of my paper we have sent the you know that journal is the Royal Met Society of that Royal Met Society that weather one uh, journal is there. In that we have already December 2007 volume. I have already mentioned that regarding this, but it is reported there. But WMO as practice, whenever any new record, they are critically evaluated by international experts. Simply one observation, they are not ready to accept. So based on that request from IMD, basically from myself, so they have constructed international committee consisting of the panel we have seen that in the press release there, where Randall was the co-reporter and including myself and other from different countries. And we have evaluated that based on the information I have supplied and they have evaluated and concluded that it was right based on the observation because we have the real observation of that person who took the observation. And I know that person also because I am still working in IMD and he worked under me. So based on the credibility of that observer and IMD observation system. So they have accepted it is the highest record of two days rainfall. So are we looking at other records to be broken by the Cherapunji area again in the near future? 
that we cannot tell, but this one day rainfall uh, just on that day, it was 15-16, the 16th rainfall 156 centimeter, it was the highest previous India's one day rainfall, that is 24 hours, was in Cherapunji, but that record exceeded in that occasion, that is 1995. But after 1995, now 2014, we have not much occurrence of that. We cannot predict that basically this type of, that is heavy rainfall, extremely heavy rainfall. But occasionally they are getting 50-60 centimeter rainfall there. They are maybe, we can hope that may the record exceed this. But uh, the investigation uh, still continues in order to find out as to whether this record could be broken by Cherapunji. Actually, based on that, uh, basically that uh, type of that orographical features of Cherapunji is like that it is southern slope of that uh, hills, that uh, Silong hill. Silong is the capital of the uh, state's Meghalaya. It is and uh, different uh, sides that Khasi, Jayantia hills. So, orography, if you can see in the Google map also, it is the peculiar feature is there. So whenever southwest monsoon, that what is monsoon of Asian monsoon or Indian monsoon, it is dominated and slightly shift that monsoon towards north. So that uh, brings a good amount of rainfall that area. Otherwise, Mon- uh, the Chirapunji is not getting too much and compared to uh, this, this type of extreme uh, occurrence only occur when this monsoon is slightly shifted towards the north. But Calcutta or that area getting uh, reduced rainfall, but northeastern side get more rainfall. It may occur if the, uh, this this type of happen. It may occur, but it cannot be um, predicted. We can hope because now we have good amount of uh, means observation system. Now the radar also are there. It can be means used for prediction also. That is day-to-day prediction. IMD has having good AWS autographic uh, ranger station also. That was Dr. Pula Gita Kuta, head of hydrology division at the India Meteorology Department in on the line from New Delhi talking to Wandile Kalipa. Tabi Solohoko, up next with our economics update. The South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry says a healthy Nigerian economy uh, could be beneficial for South Africa. However, the Chamber says this is only if domestic companies are able to strengthen their business links with Nigeria, which is now Africa's economic giant. This means South Africa will have to review its policies and approach to investor confidence. On Sunday, Nigeria claimed the crown as the biggest economy in Africa, overtaking South Africa. The new data was released by Nigeria's National Bureau of Statistics Office after a rebasing of its gross domestic product, which showed that the economy grew 40 453 billion dollars in 2012 and expects a further increase to 509 billion dollars. Kenya's national carrier, Kenya Airways, has just received its first of nine Boeing 787 Dreamliners from the United States. The 787 will form the backbone of the airline's future long-haul fleet, providing greater range and improved efficiencies. Correspondent James Chimanyola reports from Nairobi. The arrival of Kenya's first Boeing 787 Dreamliner was officially welcomed at the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport in Kenya by President Uhuru Kenyatta. 
the arrival of the Dreamliner is excellent news, not just for Kenya, but for the region. It paves the way for Kenya Airways to avoid deepen our trade connections with the world, especially through long-haul flights. I have no doubt that this will result in growth of trade, tourism, and other forms of interaction with the rest of the world. The African Development Bank has approved a $52.5 million loan for the government of Tanzania. This is to finance a technical, vocational education and training and a teacher education project in the country. 600,000 children who complete primary and secondary school in Tanzania annually are not able to climb the education ladder any further due to limited access to TVET and tertiary education. Tens of thousands of children, youth and teachers, especially from rural areas, are expected to benefit from this project, which is planned to be implemented over five years starting this year. The World Bank says growing investment in Africa's natural resources and rising household spending will accelerate economic growth in sub-Saharan Africa to 5.2% this year from 4.7% last year. The bank says new oil and gas discoveries in countries including Angola, Mozambique and Tanzania underpin rising capital inflows into the region, though a chronic energy deficit and poor transport links continue to curb growth levels regionally. In its Africa Pulse report, the Washington-based body says the capital flows from sub-Saharan Africa have risen to an estimated 5.3% of regional gross domestic product last year, outpacing the global developing country average of 3.9%. Botswana's Ministry of Agriculture uh, says, well, in the future, rather, outsource some services which has been rendering to the farmers. Speaking at the Tonota East Young Farmers Field Day, uh, the crop production director, Kharizuwe Ramokopani, noted that some services, among them seed distribution and fertilizers, which are given to farmers, will in future be supplied by the producers themselves. Ramokopani says the aim of outsourcing such services is to allow the department to focus on its core business of ensuring that farmers plant properly so that maximum output is achieved from the land which has been allocated for production. The U.S. dollar, 1053 South African rands, 864 Botswana Pulas, 1610 Zambian Kwachas. It's also trading at 0.60 British pound and at 0.72 to the euro. Gold, $1,300. Platinum, $1,425 an ounce. Brand crude, 105.55 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabiso Figlilingwati with the sports update. Now, sports update this hour starting off with swimming news. South African swim sensation Shuttle Claw won his big showdown with Dylan Bosch on the opening night of the South African Aquatic Championships with a pair among four swimmers to post Commonwealth Games qualifying times in Durban. 
Olympic gold medalist Leclerc recorded the fastest time in the world this year to win the 200 meters butterfly final in 1 minute 54.56 seconds. Bosch, who broke the NCAA or American University's record in the 200 meter yards butterfly just under 10 days ago, was second in 1 minute. 56.92 seconds with both men dipping under the 1 minute 57.03 seconds qualification mark. Leclerc says he's looking forward to amassing many medals. It's the first time any you know, individual person has some eight individual races so it's a little bit of history in that. Uh, the most I think is six or seven goals but that's with relays so if I can get close to that I'll try. Um, I don't know if I can get eight goals but I'll try my best to get as close as I can. In local football, the South African Premier Soccer League has fixed two new dates to their calendar for the next week matches. Free State Stars match against Supersport United set for Tuesday has been set back 24 hours to a 6 p.m. Central African time on Wednesday. It will still be played at the Charles Mubedi Stadium in the Free State Province. The match between the University of Pretoria and Kaiser Chiefs at the Mbombela Stadium in Pumalanga on the 26th of April has now been switched to the 6th of May at the same venue but with a slightly later kickoff of 3 p.m. Central African time. The game has been moved because of Chiefs' participation in the African Confederations Cup. Their two-leg tie against Asak Abidjan of the Ivory Coast means the scheduled game against Free Stars at Soccer City in Johannesburg on the 19th of April must also be changed. The league have yet to reschedule Stars' other outstanding game against Orlando Pirates, which was called off because of floodlight failure. Still with games of the APSA Premiership matches, South Africa's Premiership side University of Pretoria will aim to remove themselves from a potential relegation playoff sport when they play host to stragglers, Morocco Solos, in a league encounter tonight. Only two points separate the two top-flight outfits heading into this game and it will be an encounter that will prove crucial for each. University of Pretoria coach Steve Barker have been without a win in four league matches and their latest result came in the format of a 1-0 defeat to Bolugwane City. South African national women's team is to face Zimbabwe in an international friendly on the 12th of April. Banyana are preparing for the upcoming CAF African Women's Championship qualifier against Comoros next month. Vera Powell, Banyana Banyana coach, is set to give opportunities to a few new faces in order to get them senior national team debuts. One such player who could not contain his excitement is Congolese-born Ode Fulu Tudilu, who will proudly don the African jersey for the first time. We are all really excited, uh, extremely excited, because uh, it will be my first international appearance. So uh, I'm just going out there to enjoy myself and to work for the team, really, and uh, hopefully we can get uh, a good result. It's definitely not easy, but it's also not too difficult for, you know, for, for us to comprehend. And uh, I feel like every player has an idea of what they can do, contribute towards, to build up to what she's working us towards. And um, hopefully if we all buy into it, if we all work hard towards it, uh, it's a great f- uh, philosophy that she has. And if we all work hard towards it, it should be, we should be a, re- a force to reckon with. Finally, with athletics, Olympic 800-meter champion David Rudisha will return after nearly a year out injured at the Diamond League meet in Doha on the 9th of May. A 25-year-old Kenyan world record holder twisted his knee in training in New York last May and could not defend his title at last year's World Championships in Moscow. It will be 
the sixth time he has competed in the Qatar event, which is the first in the 14-leg Diamond League calendar this season. Organizers also confirmed a high-jump duel between Russian Olympic champion Ivan Ukov and local hope Motav Isa Bashim, the London Games bronze medalist. Ukov edged closer to Cuban Javier Sotomayor's world record of 2.45-meter mark with the Russian jumping 2.42-meter indoors this winter. All eyes will be on Ethiopia's Genzeba Dibaba, who broke the world indoor records over 1,500 meters and 3,000 meters in February. And that's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unare. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Rwandan President Paul Kagame slams Western countries over genocide. Food insecurity doubles in the Central African Republic. And South African athlete Oscar Pistorius testifies at his murder trial. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za, follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa, is Aya with As a Woman. I've learned to give without receiving as a woman. I've been told my place is in the kitchen as a woman. I've worked hard for my man to get all the glory as a woman. I've sacrificed for all those around me as a woman. When I love, I love completely as a woman I bring joy to all of those around me Cause I love and I care And I'll always be there for you as a Cherish you for all 